Thanks, Kathleen. Um, you know, we have a part in our worship <coughs> gathering each week, uh, we did it already today, where we confess our sins to God. Uh, we do that every week. We take a bit of time to do that, um, to make sure we can reflect on that. Now, it is possible to come to that portion of our service and be like, I am a bad Christian. I am a bad human being. I am just horrible. You have, and that's, we stretch it to a minute. You know, that's only a minute thinking about that, that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe you don't think you're, you're a bad human, maybe, but maybe at the very least, it's probably not as good as you thought kind of human when we have a second or a minute to dwell on the areas where we've kind of fallen short. And we know the truth is that we come into this world with many broken parts. We have disappointments. Our future may not be as bright as we thought as we approach it. We have fears that can control us, and we have shame over things in the past. Now, sometimes these broken parts are because of what others have done to us, but other times, and maybe more than we'd like to admit, we're not just innocent victims. This is our own doing, consequences of our own behavior. Uh, I hope that connects with you. definitely is kind of my own experience of what it means to live as a, as a human, as a Christian. The thing is, we're all bad humans. We're all bad Christians. No one lives up, regardless of where you are with Jesus or his church or the Bible, no one lives up to their ideals. We're, we all fall short. And the reason that we spend time in that confession time, the reason why we dwell on that in confession isn't to come away with more guilt and shame, but it's to make sure we have a place to put that guilt and shame. Because otherwise, it's just going to stay on us. When we carry it, we are robbed of joy. We're robbed of peace. We don't have the capacity to imagine like a big vision that can give us real meaning. We, we, it's easy to get stuck in that. And it's difficult to be full of joy when we're full of guilt. It's difficult to be taken over by peace when we're already taken over by shame. And when we're in that place, when guilt and shame and all those things don't take over, the big vision, that the best kind of vision we can have in our lives is one that just to make the pain stop so it doesn't hurt anymore. There's that famous quote from Thoreau in Walden, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. So we're all bad humans, and if you follow Jesus, you're a bad Christian too. And that can rob us of joy, of peace, and a big vision that gives us that real meaning that we all really want, that we all search after. But through what Jesus has done, he takes us bad humans, and in spite of our badness, enables us to be close to God. That's an amazing thing. When we're close to God, we get that joy, we get that peace, we get that meaning. Uh, we get that big vision that gives us meaning. And we avoid the quiet, desperate life, and we get to live into something really exciting. See, there's actually good news for bad Christians, and that's what this is going to be all about, good news for bad Christians. So if you're a good Christian, this is not a message for you, sorry. But if you're a bad Christian, I think you might get something out of it. Uh, the people in Isaiah's time that we, that we just read about <clears throat> were dealing with the same kind of spiritual reality, reality as we are. Obviously, uh, time difference, geographical difference, all sorts of things have changed. But spiritually, this had the same issue. How do you find joy and peace and meaning for people who don't measure up? Now, this is... Uh, good news <clears throat> for bad humans, for bad Christians, and if you aren't a Christian yet, this is also really good news for you too. Some people think they need to clean themselves up before coming to God, either as someone who isn't a Christian, like thinking, oh, I'm too bad for God, how could he possibly love me? Uh, or someone who is a Christian, you might think those very things, or might, you might have to think, oh, I can't pray to him now, I have to you know, either spend some time separated from that thing I just did, or clean myself up a little bit, or do, you know, present, make myself presentable, which none of those things are true. 
So even though we're going to be talking about bad Christians in here, regardless of how you would define yourself Christian or not, there's going to be a lot of overlap in here for all of us. So these, what we're going to get in this first section here is about joy. These first five verses are about joy. The very first word in there is to sing. What are bad Christians called to do? We're called to sing. Now, if you've followed this series at all, you know that God's people aren't super great. You know that in your own life. You also know that from Isaiah and, and how the people in Isaiah's time just kind of did their own thing. We talked a lot about that by now. So they're disobedient. They seek after their own good. They might be religious, but they don't really listen to God with their whole lives. So why are these people called to sing? What's the deal here? Well, the reason is because God has gathered a supernatural family, and that gives them joy. The barren woman is called to sing in verse 1. Uh, the barren woman hasn't ceased being barren. It's not like she's producing the offspring. Uh, burst into song, shout for, for joy. For you who were never in labor, because she wasn't able to have natural children, um, are now have more children than those who were able to have physical children. There's a supernatural reality going on here. God has given the offspring despite the barrenness, not because of what she's done, but because of what God is doing. And this offspring can't be explained naturally. This is a supernatural action, which causes us to sing when we see that happen. God is talking about how he's going to build his people through supernatural birth, no longer defined by physical descent, but through supernatural birth. This is what Jesus talks about in the New Testament when he talks about being born again. That's exactly what's going on here. So that's one thing. We're called to sing because of the joy that comes from that supernatural family being gathered together, which is stuff we've been able to see here in Redeemer. But also, in, um, we're called to, in verse 2, uh, to enlarge the tent. Not only is one family uh, being enlarged here, but in verses 2 and 3, this formerly barren family that was not able to produce offspring now is called to enlarge their whole tent. And the reason why uh, Isaiah is using the word tent here, because these people aren't living in tents when they're listening to this, the reason why, as I was talking about, that's supposed to bring about that, uh, the Israel's kind of uh, collective memory of what it was like for their ancestors to go through the wilderness. They didn't have a home. They didn't have a place. Um, in fact, they were very disobedient and grumbled loads of times in the wilderness, as we all do when we're in our own wilderness. But there's also this dependence on God that they had then and this, uh, this closeness that they had with God. So the tent life is like one that's um, it's like the ideal life of being with God depending on him, having a closeness with him. And it's interesting, look at the two ways that we're called to enlarge it. Um, we're getting into some like nitty-gritty details, but I think it's just interesting, and well, not just interesting, it's more than interesting stuff, it's really important stuff. To lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. There's two things of here going on here. To lengthen the cords and to strengthen the stakes. To grow in numbers and in depth. Because we're talking about the family that's gonna be taking up this place of the tent. So not only are they growing in numbers, but they're also going to be growing in depth and maturity. There's more people and more mature people. And in verse 3, God's saying, you will spread out to the right and to the left. This is God's promise. It's done by him, secured by him, all from God's perspective. Now, sometimes when there's a big vision out there, which would have been for Isaiah's people here, and if we were to take a second and apply what that would be like for us as a church, which we haven't done yet, but we will, when there's that big kind of vision, sometimes there's a bit of reluctance, a bit of fear. Like, that sounds too crazy. That, that sounds a bit bonkers, and I don't know if I'm, I'm up for the task. It sounds amazing, and I'm scared of that because it's so amazing. It's normal to have a bit of reluctance there. It's normal to have a bit of fear. And that's why, in verse 4, God tells his people, and he tells us, bad Christians, to not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You will not be put to shame. 
You're going to be on this track, and you won't be put to shame, and I'm going to make sure that's going to happen. You're not going to fail, and fail in, in the way that God's defining failure. So in that first section of verse, of, of verse 4, that expansion of this family, this big vision, God is saying it's not something you're going to fail in. You're not going to be humiliated, humiliated because it's God's work after all. And to the extent that we trust in God doing his work, we know that we won't fail. Because God doesn't fail. It's his work. It's not going to fail. If we surrender to his work, we won't be disappointed. The second reason to not be afraid is the shame of our badness. This is in the second part of verse 4. Those things that you replay over and over in your head, that's forgotten. It's wiped clean because you're born new. You're a new person. God says, God tells us, we will forget the shame of our youth and remember no more the reproach of our widowhood. In verse 5, our confidence is in the future, is founded on God. Because he's secured it, we can actually rest on it. It's not something that depend, that's dependent on us to be able to secure for ourselves, but something that God has done and he will secure and has secured. So that means we can rest. We can have peace. If it's something on us, we always have to be working to keep it up. But if it's something on God, he will do it. Now, if you talk about shame and disgrace and humiliation, this is like a pizza of fear with all the toppings, all the bad stuff on there piled high, like Chicago-style deep dish fear pizza that we're like set before us, stacked to the brim of everything that would lead us to live out of fear instead of living out of God's promises. But there can be joy for bad Christians because all of those things, fear, humiliation, disgrace, all of those things are out of the picture as we surrender to the Lord. That's the thing that we get as we surrender to the Lord. And the way that God is spoken of here is that of a loving husband or a careful craftsman. Our maker makes people who aren't his people, his people. That's what he does. God, our husband, deliberately forms a relationship with us, one that's designed for as long as he lives. For God, that's a long time. God lives, how long is God going to live? He's going to live for a while, I think. Probably going to live for a little bit, longer than us, right? He's also called the Redeemer. Hey, that's a good name for a church. Uh, a Redeemer takes people without a life or a hope, without a way of making meaning in this world, and when the Redeemer steps into that situation, the relationship he forms with those people gives them life, gives them hope, and gives them a way to make meaning in this world. Outside of that Redeemer being present in their relationship, there, there's, there's no hope really to be had. Now, in a couple weeks' time, uh, we'll be outside altogether with a baptism service, not next week, but the week after. Now, baptism is a symbol, here's um, Micaiah getting baptized, is a symbol of all that we talked about here in these first kind of five verses. All that we talked about here is this inward change that we have. And baptism is the outward declaration that these inward things have happened. It's how people who weren't God's people but now are, it's how they officially enter his church. Now, nothing mystical happens in baptism, and you can see there, it's actually, it's a, we use a birthing pool, which I feel is kind of apt, you know. Um, it looks like a kiddie pool, but, you know, it's a birthing pool, new birthing pool. I don't stupid minister joke. Um, but it, uh, it, it's, it, nothing kind of mystical happens there. You, you, get, you get wet, right? And it probably will be cold. But uh, it's a sense, it's, it's what it symbolizes, a symbol of supernatural birth. It's just like when we take communion. There's nothing mystical in, in the wafer and the juice, but it's a symbol of what we're doing. It's an aspect of our worship. And when someone gets baptized, that's what a growing tent looks like. That's what a supernatural family growing looks like. When someone gets baptized, that means another person has been able to walk a new life free from that fear pizza. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony, a public declaration of the commitment between two people. It's an overflow of what's already gone in our hearts, made official, 
and then there's a big party afterwards. So as bad Christians, what do we do? Well, we sing, and we keep singing. Even when we sin, we keep singing. We enlarge our tent, and we don't hold back. We make room for more to join in. There's an expectation there. Before, you have to enlarge the tent. Before, you have to make space for people before they come in. And as we follow the Lord, he will gather people in, in his timing and in his way. And also, we don't live out of fear, because we believe that when God tells us we're forgiven, we believe that we are. And this gives us a confidence to go out and risk in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. So for bad Christians, there's joy. Now, in these next verses, uh, God tells us what he does for bad Christians. And of course, when I say bad Christians, I mean all Christians, if you haven't got that yet. Um, there's this, in, the, in these next verses here, um, there's this kind of running theme of a marriage. If the first five verses was, was maybe like a, a husband and wife, these next ones, is like, um, or of a family, this next one is more of like a husband and wife. The story here in these verses is we were married to God, we messed up that marriage, and God's going to make it right. He was rightly angry with us because we went out and we cheated on him with all sorts of other people, all sorts of other lovers, but he's not angry with us forever. He comes back. His compassion and kindness is more than his anger. We deserve anger and separation, but for those who are God's people, God has promised to not be angry with us forever, to never leave us. See, a marriage is a covenant. A covenant is just another word for, for a promise, a commitment. What we did is we created a covenant of conflict. God has overcome that with his covenant of peace. And when we say we follow Jesus and we don't, which is what we do every day, which is why we have confession and why we should always be a people of repenting, um, that's a conflict. We're creating conflict. Or when we don't live up to our ideals in any way, that's a conflict too. God overcomes our conflict with his peace. And isn't this the story of the Old Testament over and over and over again? If you've ever spent time reading the Old Testament, if you've read any bit of it, we see story upon story of how even the best versions of us, like the leaders, the fathers of our faith, they create conflict. We're just not good enough on our own. But thankfully, through Jesus, we can change. Now, what I find interesting in these verses is the change that's going on here isn't with so much within us. It's actually within God. There's a change that's going on here. He was angry, but now he's not. It was like, uh, he's saying it was like Noah. So I, it was something that uh, there was a punishment, but now I'm not going to do it. All this change is happening within, within God himself. It's not actually happening with us. He's not angry or full of wrath, but is kind, compassionate, and shows mercy. Now, if you can remember the very first words uh, of, uh, of our series in Isaiah 40 was comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the city of God's people. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. How can God be the Holy One of Israel, completely perfect, only accepting perfectness, and kind? How can God be rightly full of justice for people who deserve justice and also completely full of mercy? This change within God has come about through the servant. And really, actually, this chapter is, a, um, is here because of the previous chapter. So if you remember it all last week, this is maybe one of the main verses from last week, talking about the servant, capital S, Jesus, saying, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Because that's true, chapter 54 exists in the Bible. If, if, if this was not true of Jesus, of the servant, then chapter 54, even if it was written, just wouldn't be true. 
This is how God can be just and merciful. The cross of Christ is where God's justice and his mercy meet. It's where they, they kiss. There's a great word that I always like to use called a tryst. I never use it outside of this. It's like this like forbidden meeting where two lovers ought not to meet up, but they find this like secret spot and they meet up. It's a meeting that should have never happened, but it did happen. And because it did happen, God has done so many things for us bad Christians. We fear he has it out for us. We always think God's disappointed in us. We always think that he doesn't like us or whatever. Even that he's like slightly disappointed. Or maybe... Maybe he like, can stand us, but gives us a cold shoulder from now and, now and again. But that's not the God that we read about here. That, this God is full of compassion. He brings us back. He has kindness without end, like kindness without end. You, could, you can't exhaust his kindness. Whether we fail or whether life fails us, God is always there inviting us back. So we wrecked the marriage, and God has put it back together. And that's what God does for bad Christians. Now, a few weeks ago, I have no idea how I came across this, but I came across this term, uh, kat, kaketsugi, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It was started in Japan. It's this art of invisibly mending clothes, which I would find to be very helpful to know how to do. Um, here's some, there's a, a YouTube video that I came across. There's some screen grabs from before and after. See, the top is what we do. The bottom is what God does. We tear, God mends. We burn, God mends. To tear our own soul or burn parts of our deepest selves. That takes more than a couple highly skilled workers. And this is God's work in us. I mean, it's like it was never there. Restored to what we should be instead of what we've done to ourselves. And when God mends, it's done in such a way that the damage, we will remember it often. It's not like we will forget it, but the damage is no longer a defining part of who we are anymore because he makes us new. And this is what the cross has done for us, formerly torn, now new. And so for us, bad Christians, who've been able to experience that joy of the cross that comes through Jesus, what do we do? Well, we do the same kind of things that the first kind of verses. We sing, we enlarge our tent, we don't live out of fear. We sing, we praise God for his work. We will literally do that in a bit, and, but not just literally through that, but also our lives become songs to God's praise. New people have a reason to sing. Old people don't have a new reason to sing. By old people, I'm not going to but old age. <laughs> I'm an old person. I have plenty of reason to sing, I'm sure. New people get new songs. There's a hole. I'm just going to pretend like that hole didn't exist. I'm just going to go to the next thing. <laughs> we enlarge our tent. So what, we, what does that mean for us? Oh, well, we pray and we expect others to join in. So we make room in our own lives, in our missional communities. On Sundays, we don't hold back. And also, when people, we, we gladly send people to other countries, like Josh and Rachel, because we expect God to enlarge the tent in the way that he wants to. Also, we don't live out of fear. If you follow Jesus, you are a new creation. You're adopted in God's family. He's not gonna go back on that adoption. If you found this new life, you've been newly adopted, this should be something that overcomes our fear of awkwardness or bringing it up with other people. If God has actually done a great thing for you, surely he could do a great thing for someone else. And maybe the only way they're going to hear about it is through you. So we talked about what God does for bad Christians. And also there's joy for, for bad Christians as well. This next section, the last chunk here of chapter 54, is about the good life for bad Christians. There we are, good lives for bad Christians. In this last section, we've changed from living in tents, as, as a metaphor, now to a city. 
And there's like this description of like these, uh, these sto- like turquoise and rubies and jewels, all these kind of things in a city. This is an established, a growing, thriving city. But it doesn't start off that way. It was a broken city. It was forgotten. It was left alone. It was destroyed by these powerful outside forces and is now being remade. And this is the image of the good life. Now, you will read this, and maybe you did even while Kathleen was reading it, as a metaphor for you individually. That is true information. That's just not what God is saying here. This is not a message to you as an individual. This is a message to us as people in community. You are not your own. And it's not just you and God either. It's even something beyond a single church, something bigger than Redeemer. We're given a larger vision. The good life for the bad Christian is a beautiful city where its structures are built on justice, uh, on, on the good of others, where children find peace, where there is peace for all, even when the weapons of this world are used against it. So it's not like there aren't battles, there are. But there's peace even amidst, in, in the middle of battles. And once you look at all the actions that are going on in these verses, we're not going to take time to do all that. If you look at all the verbs, you see actually it's God who's doing all the work. We're all passive in this. God is doing all the things. It's from his perspective, just like those first kind of few verses. He's building the city as he chooses. God isn't creating new individuals. That's not what he does. He creates new community full of new individuals. And community is something more than spectating. It's participating. And this, these verses are partially true for us now, but will one day be completely true for us in the new heavens and earth. But as we look forward to live in that future that we have, in that complete city, let's not overlook how we can live in the good life now because we are able to do that now in God's community. Being present with his people on Sundays is necessary for the good life. How else are we going to hear about the word altogether? Being present with his people in our missional communities is necessary for the good life. Being present with others outside of like prescribed, formalized times, that's necessary for the good life. We don't set these things up just for stuff to do or to, like, to join our club and to do our things. The reason why we have these structures is because we know that living as new people in this new city, in a world that is not yet new, is a difficult thing. And we need to have as many people around us to be work, walking with us as we go through this good life. Now, I said most of these verbs here are about God doing something, but there is something here that we're called to do. And it comes from a popular verse as well. In verse 17, No weapon forged against you will prevail, you will refute every tongue that accuses you. So here's one of the things that we get to do because of what God is doing here. The weapons that are forged against us, these are tongues that accuse us, weaponized words. Other people say things. Of course, we have that inner voice that isn't always super encouraging, right? And there's also dark spiritual forces that accuse us as well. Satan himself was called the accuser, capital A kind of accuser. When those things come up against us, and they will, that's a guarantee, God has promised us that they will not prevail. They won't win out. This is the inheritance we get, even as bad Christians. Because of what Jesus has done, we get to refute every single one of those weapons. When those thoughts come in, like before going to bed, or when you're time by yourself and it's quiet, you get to say, no, I, I, I may have made those mistakes and I can ask forgiveness for that, and I will get forgiveness for that, but I'm not guilty anymore. I don't have to carry that. I'm not, I don't have to carry shame anymore. That's all been carried and borne by Jesus. And last I checked, those things didn't resurrect, only Jesus did. And also remember the context for, how these, for what this is going on. Uh, it's not by ourselves. You can't do this by yourself. You're not made for it, you're not built for it. Don't expect that to actually happen. It's together. The hope is found in community with God and with each other. I mean, even thinking about your missional communities, 
uh, let alone speaking the gospel to someone who may not know it yet. Do we speak the gospel to each other often in our missional communities? I hope we do, but we can probably all stand to do a little bit better in that. Well, we have a saying here at Redeemer, um, we often say in Manchester as in heaven, this comes from the belief that Manchester is God's city, that fact isn't always reflected though, and so it's also a prayer that one day Manchester will reflect the new heavens and the earth, where, where we are going and where God will take us, which is an image of kind of what we get in these eight verses here. But how can our city now, how can, and even how can we join God in his mission for this city to better reflect what it really ought to be? Because that's really one of the reasons that we're here for. See, God has been really good to our church. Most churches aren't growing in general in the UK. Most churches are dying. We're not. We have been growing. Most new churches, especially, they fail. Churches that do grow often go through kind of shuffling existing Christians around. You all, we, we've worked really hard for Redeemer. You know it's not the easiest thing that we've been doing. But God is growing Redeemer. We've been around for four years. And to survive COVID by itself, that's it's an amazing feat that is not on us. That's what God is doing. So what does the future look like for us? Where do we go now? Because we've, we've mostly emerged from COVID, but what happens next? Well, the same kind of stuff that, happened, that we've read in those first five verses. We sing, we enlarge our tent, and we don't live out of fear. We sing. Through your job, you get to be a part of reflecting the new heavens and earth here and now. I don't care what job you have, however boring it might be or might not be, in what you do, in your actual job, there is a way that that actually connects with uh, God's, God working out his renewal plan for this earth. And I don't know exactly how that works for every single person here, but I know it's true. That might be hard to see how it works out, and maybe that's a good conversation to have in your missional community. How in the world does this actually like, join God in his mission? I guarantee you it does, even if we may not know what it, it might actually be yet. So your actual job, not just as a platform to talk about Jesus with people, but your actual job actually has dignity in itself. So we sing, and that through our work. We also, we enlarge the tent. Churches don't just happen to fall into planting churches. It takes a bit of work to get there. There's a bit of lead up. Got to be intentional. It takes generous, sacrificial work over a long period of time, especially in our context. Now, Redeemer is just one church. We're a drop in the bucket in Manchester. Manchester, less than 2% of people go to any kind of church whatsoever. In our area, less than 0.1% of people go to any kind of church whatsoever. The question is, what are we going to do? We... If, there was, if that was to be 1% or even 2%, which is still quite low for this area, we would need more than one church. You need like loads of churches. So what are we going to do? Can we plant a church? There are people who aren't believers yet that I don't know who, Lord willing, will be part of planting a church from Redeemer in the future at some point. These people might be people you know or maybe people who you don't know yet either. There are people that God has put in your life, though, where he will use you because it's what he does. He will use your missional community, because that's how it works, to bring into his supernaturally growing family in order for Manchester to reflect heaven a little bit more. I do believe that where we are now as a church is a perfect time to begin this process. See, where does that little blue... This is us, right? Where's the little tiny dot? But now, when's the best time to start planting a church? The answer is probably always now. And it's going to look different depending on where churches are. But here's how this could happen for us as a church to join God in this. If we were able to bring someone on staff to work within the church for a certain amount of time, like a few years or so, their time working for Redeemer, they could learn about church planting, they could learn about the area. As they head into it, they start a new missional community, perhaps, and that becomes like the seeds for a new church. And then we get to send them off as a plant from Redeemer. Now, we're small, but there is no reason why we can't go through this process in five years' time or even less. There's no reason why that can't happen. 
Well, here's the thing. To do that, to enlarge a tent, it costs us many things. It disrupts what we're used to because we liked a tent like this, and now the tent's like this, and that changes things. It costs money for tent-making supplies. It costs time and energy to set it up. Specifically, the biggest barrier for us at the moment uh, as a church is probably money. To free someone even part-time from working a full-time job, to free them off even just part-time to be able to work towards planting a new church. This is what it would mean to Redeemer. This is theology meeting the road. We have Generally, we have a deficit of about 500 pounds a month. 60% of our giving in the church comes from outside Redeemer, mostly people from America, very generous people from America. So if we want to start new churches, what we need to do is grow now so that we can be generous to give later. This is a crazy thing. When you start a new church, it's not like that becomes a, um, a, a, a money pit. It almost always becomes a new way to generate more money, which frees more people to do more work and more mission. So it's not about the money. It's about money just equals time. If you're able to give someone some money, that frees them from working, and then they can work more on ministry. So if we want to plant new churches, we need to grow now so we can be generous to give later. And growing now means giving now because there is a story waiting to be written in Deansgate. There's a story waiting to be written in Ermston. There's a story waiting to be written in, in Harper Hay, in Bessick, in the Mayfield area. There are stories to be written here in Churlton and stories to be written all over our city. And we can be a part of that. When we pray in Manchester as in heaven, God is going and has been inviting us to be part of the answer to that. And one of the things we get to do is to give so that we can plant churches. I want to plant churches, but without all of us being a part of that in giving, and not just, I'm giving, I'm not just saying money, giving all sorts of other things, uh, we just won't be able to. If we do enlarge the tent, we shouldn't, or sorry, if we don't enlarge our tent, we shouldn't expect more people to come in. So really what the question is, are we praying for this? Because that's where we need to be right now. We need to be praying for that. And every time we say in Manchester as in heaven, this ought to be like just a quick little ding in the back of our heads. One day we'll get to be able to plant a church. It also means many other things from us. It means uh, speaking the gospel to each other in a way that feels normal, like we're fluent with the gospel as a language. It means inviting other people into our lives, uh, bringing our missional community to other people's lives. It means serving on Sundays and in missional communities. It means sharing what we do online. You may say, oh, I'm not really online that much. You know who else is online? Like everybody else. So like you could share it online and other people can see. It also does mean resources like money, but that's just one small part of it. It's about the spirit, our own spiritual condition that is, is, will always hold us back. So let's not hold back. Let's see, what, what in the world could God get up to in about five years? Now, lastly, we don't live out of fear. We speak the words of the gospel to others. We get to be part of many community events here as a church. The reason why we do those things is to create welcoming environments for us, not, not just me, but you all, to, for us to speak the gospel to people, to share your faith. And sharing our faith does require words. This is also what, how we organize our missional communities. Our missional communities must be orientated around other people. There just isn't another option. That's just not how we do church here. The reason this is a must is because we aren't just in it for ourselves. We don't want to hoard it for ourselves. We want to be welcoming to everybody regardless of where they are. And one of the reasons for your missional community to be a context for you to share your faith uh, is because how else are people going to hear it? And that's why every uh, MC has a shared mission. Without a collective commitment to a mission of some sort, we don't really kind of have to follow through with it. We just kind of skate by, which is how I will live and how all of us will live unless kind of put to, the, put to it. And this is also true of our own personal lives as well because we have 
work colleagues, we have neighbors, we have friends, we have family. If we don't speak about Jesus, we really shouldn't expect to see lives changed. And if we don't pray, we shouldn't ever expect to have that ability to be able to do that, nor the opportunity to. So this is first God's work that he calls us to join. So that means it's prayer first, because it's his work. How else could we know how to join it unless we ask him? So it's prayer and in action, but of course in that order, prayer and action. So the hope for bad Christians, for bad humans, is in God's hands. And maybe as I was rattling all those things off even right now, you're kind of like, oh man, I need to pray more. Oh man, I need to talk to that person about Jesus. I'll never do that because I'm just too awkward and I'm too scared. I don't know enough. Oh man, I'm a horrible like work colleague. Or, you know, all the things that kind of go on, those kind of guilt-like ridden things, which is the complete opposite of what Isaiah is talking about and what we talked about the whole like sermon, right? Here's the thing. Jesus gives us joy as we get to see his supernatural work despite our brokenness. God's never going to remove the fear, but he's going to allow you to go through it. Jesus, through the cross, has already mended the relationship that we broke with him. And we have that firm foundation that allows us to risk in ways that wouldn't be true otherwise. He graciously gives us the good life in his community, one that is growing into a city. And that allows us to sing. That's what motivates us to enlarge our tent. And that's what enables us to not live out of fear. Because of the person and work of Jesus, there is good news even and especially for bad Christians. Let me pray.